now I want to help you understand how I live with that thoughtful uncertainty or that ambiguity of how do we really process scripture and what it says. And I want to use a specific analogy and example to show you what that is. I'm going to call it the elliptical playground. This is probably the world's most famous ellipse. It's uh, what we would call an oval. An ellipse is basically, you can see the White House there behind, that's the ellipse in Washington, D.C. An ellipse is a circle with two focal points. There's two centers. And, and the, the, the oval is the equal, if the one center point is here and the other one say over here, then you, you draw that with this example right here. You could draw it by putting two pins on a point with a string and then using a pencil to draw an ellipse. Do you understand? How I see the, theological understanding, particularly those things that in, in Scripture seem to be competing with each other. What I would say, rather than competing more, are complementary. Things like the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And oftentimes we're kind of pushed by the so-called doctrinal experts into one of those camps. It's either all God's sovereignty or it's all human will. And I think what Scripture is actually defining, because Scripture is defining a reality so much larger than I think can be just linearly put in a book. It's describing the infinite God of the ages, how He thinks, how he works, and how he moves. And that's hard enough for me as a writer. I'm a human. And trying to put everything I think into a book and the nuances of that meaning and getting... And people sometimes read something I wrote and they will say, why, Wayne, do you really believe this? And I'll go, my goodness, that, no, that's not... If that's what you got out of that, I didn't write it right. Because I'm, I'm really a more full person than even an eight-hour teaching can tell you everything I would want to tell you about scriptures and about how I read it. It's just the time frame we've chosen for this. But there's so many things in Scripture that seem to be like that. There's there's the individuality of our, our Christian faith. And there's the corporateness of the body of Christ. And when you try and live that on proof texts and principles, you run into problems. I tend to see it like this. Scripture is defining for us what I'm going to call the elliptical playground. Scripture defines for us this is the realm in which truth in God exists. And it's not just a point to stand on. It defines the edges of a field. And inside that field, I get to live in the truth of God, the reality of God, the love of God. But in that playing field, what God might be telling me to do in a given circumstance, and you're in almost an identical circumstance. But what God wants you to do is very different because of things going on that are different than mine. And that's why I don't trust principles to deal with anything anymore. Because I think Scripture gives us this comfortable zone of saying, when I'm inside this ellipse, I'm living in the light and truth of God. But most of us spend our lives living out here somewhere. I don't see this as these people are saved because they have the truth. And these people are pagans and morons because they don't. I think God, the journey with us in terms of theological truth is God moving us into unworthy views of him increasingly into this space. Here's that space when Jesus said, if you keep my commands, then you'll remain in my love. And that's been so misinterpreted often by people to say, okay, when you do what God says, he'll love you. When you don't do what God says, then he doesn't love you. And that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, because God's love we know is constant. We have that love all the time. But when we aren't living as if we're loved, like in the parable of the prodigal, both the prodigal boy out in the woods, out in his riotous living, and, forgot to start that, and the kid living at home, both of them are not in their father's love. It doesn't mean they're not loved. It means they're not living in the benefit of it. 
because they're living as if they're not loved. And that's where sin dwells. This is where error dwells. This is where we get confused and do the wrong thing and think we're helping and it doesn't help. It's because we don't really know what it is that God's putting on our heart or what it is that we're learning or how it is that we hold these things in tension. And for me, I love wanting, learning to live in this space. There is, with these competing, I, mean, I think I gave you a list of them on your notes. I'll go through another list here, and it may not quite be the same because I always change my notes up till the last minute. That's what computers allow us to do. But it's in this sphere that I want to learn to live. And I don't always live here. I have stuff where I'm living out here still. This is not a salvation line. This is just in this space is where love and rest and righteousness and peace and joy, where all that stuff, this is where my life gets to live. When I'm living out here in my fears, anxieties, my ignorance, my misinformation, then life's more of a struggle out here. And, I, and, I, and I'm hurting people even when I'm not trying to. And it, I think the whole of spiritual growth is God moving us into the space and then seeing things we read in Scripture as not just, okay, here's a principle to live by, but here's one of those things that defines this space. And then there's a competing or complementary view of Scripture or a different kind of thing about God. And we're getting God described from two angles so that we understand something broader about Him than just a principle. Now, we've seen that in our own history. Back at the, in our, when our Constitution was given and they were forming the Bill of Rights, our founders were trying to describe, what do we do about religious liberty? And every way they tried to phrase a principle that would determine religious liberty, they couldn't do it. They couldn't find agreement. And so Madison actually came up with language that didn't say this is what it is. It says it can't be this and it can't be this. So and one thing, Congress shall make no law that respects an establishment of religion. So Congress can't endorse a religious faith and promote it. But they said on the other side, Congress can't inhibit it either. Congress can't do things that limit people's practice of religious faith. So they did exactly what I'm talking about. They, they put two focal points and our courts for the last 200 years or so has tried to define when a law gets out here because now either Congress is establishing something or it's inhibiting something. And it can be a student wearing a T-shirt on a public high school campus with a religious message on it. And the school makes a rule against it. You can't do it. No religious messages here. And the courts say, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, we can't establish it. But that student has free speech rights. So that law is no good. So we move it back into the space. Do you understand? It's two competing, two complementary principles, and it's the orbit of those that create the space for us to live in. Let's look at some of the, and here's what happens, I think, on the other side of that. Here's what we often do. We'll take one of those things and make it the center point of our theology, whether that's sovereignty of God, as the Calvinists seem to have done, or the Arminians, the free will of man, and ignore the other part. So in this, you can define in this circle, this is your sphere of truth. It all orbits around your little principle. And you know what? Some days you're right. Some days this, this is where you're living in some of that field that really makes sense. What you're missing is all this field over here. And you've also got some places where you're living in this whole sense of it's all up to God, so I don't have to do anything. You're missing up into this great dance God's invited us into where we participate with Him in the work. Do you understand? So it's not this is horrible, this leads to evil. These, they're right some days. They've got some things to add to the puzzle. It's the exclusion of the complementary thing. So things like God is both love and He's truth. That's two of those things to hold in tension. The people that end up talking about the love of the Abba and it's just God's my chummy little buddy and we just hang out together and God's just full of warm fuzzies. That's nuts. That's going to take you far afield of some things that's going to leave you living in places that aren't where God wants you to live. 
because God's also light. In his love travels light. And I think what we did in the shack to show Mac as this estranged guy from God who then comes into an affectionate relationship with Jesus and with Papa and with Sarayu, now at the cave where Sophia confronts him with the truth, man, that's a vicious thing what they're telling Mac. You have judged God out of the knothole of your own pain. In a man in depression, tell him that, just give him a gun, he can blow his brains out. The reason why that works is because God's already built a bridge to man. The God telling him this is his fault is the God who loves him, not the God who condemns him. And when God's truth is conveyed in the context of God's affection, we can receive it. We can respond to it. And it doesn't condemn us and it doesn't brutalize us. Love and truth have to work together. But if you're only going to talk about love, or if you're only talking, this is the truth, man. If you don't live by the truth, man, God's going to get you. Then we have this problem of orbiting around one small part of it instead of seeing the larger thing. Grace and obedience, the same thing. And James gets to that, the faith and works. So we're talking about this because in the epistles, we're going to see this. James is talking about show me your work, uh, show me your faith by your works. And if you don't have it, you don't have faith. And Martin Luther hated it so bad, he didn't recognize James as part of the Bible. He threw it out of the canon. He said, no, that doesn't work. But what James is really saying is, if you say you have faith, but there's no practical expression of that in your life, you need to question whether you really have faith. He's not saying you're not a believer and God hates you. And, but if you really, if faith isn't taking expression and changing the way you live and love in the world, then maybe you need to take a look at, is my faith real? And if it's not, make it real. Not go work hard to prove your faith. That's not James's point. But both grace Yes, I need God's grace. I'm not going to get it perfect on any day. But every day I wake up, I want to live in the light of what God's teaching me. And I I don't want to just say, you know what, I really don't want to learn today. I'm just going to trust God's grace. And I'm not going to do what I need to do or do my part or do what he's asking me to do. Then we're going to end up again. We're going to have these things as one or the other. God is Abba. God is judge. That's another one of those. He is a judge in Scripture. Now, we've made judge a scary term. You can get Christians to pray most fervently if you give them a prophecy first about, you know, I just sense God's going to judge America. And if we don't pray and hold back God's judgment, you know, it's going to get really bad for us. And man, can you get people to pray? There's nothing Christians hate more than God's judgment. When in Scripture, it's the very thing that causes creation to dance and sing and rejoice. It's the prayer of many, even David in the Old Testament is saying, God, come and judge, come and judge the world. Why? We've got fear because God's this angry, terrified deity, and we just don't want him coming to judge. But if God's our Abba, then judgment is not, I just want to beat up the world. I want to come and set right what's wrong. I pray for God's judgment every day. I ask God to judge me. When David says, consider my heart, O God. Look at my way. See if there is any wicked thing in me. I want God's judgment in my life. I'm not, it's not something I'm afraid of. Like, look at this angry God going to whack me to death. God's coming to make right in Wayne what is twisted. What's wrong with that? God wants to come and judge America. God wants to come to America, even if that means scarcity and need and whatever, but to make right what is so wrong in our country. Why wouldn't we be praying for that instead of being praying against it? Doesn't it, see? So God is judge. I embrace that. He's the judge. But the one judging is my Abba. And that makes me even good about the judgment. So you see how both those two come into play? So when you read something, as proof texting always does, it puts a set of scripture against another set of scripture saying only one of these can be true. Don't accept that. Except, well, hold it a minute. Maybe they both together. It's the tension 
between the two that define this playground we get to play in. Predestined and free will. We've already talked about that. I, I do believe the sovereignty. Nothing happens apart from God's moving in the world. I fully embrace that. I can't change anything in my life if God's not at work in me to change it. I can't come to truth if he's not shining light into my life. But I also believe I have a free will to participate with him or not. I can make this easier for him by being someone who wants to go on to this dance. And yeah, God does 90% of the work. But my 10% is not unimportant. My yielding to him, responding to him. You can't read the New Testament without saying that if people don't respond to him, then things don't happen the way God wants them to happen. We have the freedom not to respond to him. That's the whole essence of creating us as beings that are like him. We have a sense of sovereignty about what I choose to do and not do in the confines of my own life. And God wants to come into my life, and as I embrace Him and His will, I, I choose to go on a dance with Him. I choose to experience life the way He wants me to experience it. And, and we grow in this stuff. I, I start learning some of this stuff. Well, I didn't mean to go there. There's my button again. Sorry. I, I start a lot of this stuff way out here, and God draws me this way. That's why when I'm talking to somebody, I'm not concerned if they're here so much. I've got to get you in the circle. I care that people are moving this way that they're moving, that they may be living unloved, they may be living in exam- they may be struggling with stuff, they may not know how to participate with God, but they want to learn. And I think that's what God, this more oval is kind of where that playground really is loving and full and free, but we're not abandoned outside of it. God's the one drawing us into a greater understanding of who he is, how we embrace it, and how we get to live in that reality. The kingdom present or the kingdom future. We'll read about both as you go through the epistles. Talks about the kingdom to come. And, you know, but it also talks about the kingdoms here. And so there's that part of, yes, it's a reality we get to embrace in part. And it's a reality that's coming in its fullness at the end of time. We know God in part now, but when that which is perfect has come, we're going to see him as he is. So there's this tension as we read. And let that tension exist. There's nothing, I think our desire or maybe fear, as you expressed it, to try to get to something we can say, of certainty, that's the way I live my life, drives us to conclusions we don't need to be driven to. It can say, I want to learn both. I want to learn the kingdom present. And I want to learn the kingdom to come. And I want to embrace both of those realities side by side. Individuality and the unity, the corporateness of the body of Christ. You hear people get scared on both ends. Completely reject any sense of church and community and cooperation and just, just me and Jesus. And we're going to live this out together and the church is all corrupt and blah, blah, blah. Well, there's a lot of religious institutions that have the problems that all institutions have. And as they're run by people who sometimes care more about preserving the institution than why the institution began in the first place. That's always true. But Scripture talks about how important each of us, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians says. That's an individual reality. But then when that's a reality, Christ in you, the hope of glory, God's going to draw us together because why? I get to know God in part. But you, we together as the growing family of God in the world get to know Him in its fullness. The church is the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way, according to Ephesians 1. So we get both. We don't, we're not left to go, I've got to choose the set of principles and the, the, the identity. And I think, what even, I think even what we've done to some of the words of the Reformers, I don't know that Wesley, Luther, or Calvin would come back today and be happy what we've done with the things they've written. I think they would see it as a distortion. I don't think John Wesley could preach in most Methodist churches today. I think some of the things he say get kicked out of. I know a Lutheran pastor that was fired for teaching some of Martin Luther's teachings on grace. They just couldn't, they just, no, we don't want that. It's not going to let this institution work. And that's usually the problem. 
How do we live in that reality and find who God is and, and let it continue to work that way? So we go on to things like, even the one we're talking about here. Sorry, I keep going on too early. Scripture and spirit. The scripture in our lives and its value and the spirit who informs us. And both those two define a field together we get to live in. If you want to say, I'm just a spirit guy, man. I don't think scriptures are confusing. They're religious. They're man's creation anyway. I don't care about them. You lose a huge chunk of what's lovely about this life. And if you want to just say, it's all scripture, man. We have everything we need right here and we don't need Jesus to speak to us today. He doesn't speak to us today because people listen to Jesus all turn out weird and they hear God tell them to kill people and they have demons and all that stuff. And you go, you know, the abuse of something doesn't negate the reality of something. And we need both. It's the spirit and the scriptures that function together in our life. Accountability and mercy. Two things, again, to hold in tension. Are we accountable to God? Is Yes, I'm accountable to God. But in the accountability, there's great mercy from this God. And you let both of those live in tension and grow in what they mean together. I don't have to choose one over the other or exclude one from the other. And that's what makes life, I think, live for us.